Well, hello and welcome to What's Brewing, Cisfa? What's Brewing, Cisfa is a podcast produced for the California Community College's Student Financial Aid Administrators Association. I'm your host, Dennis Schrader. I serve as the 2021-2022 CISFA past president. It's a busy Tuesday, so Dana, my co-host, is busy working the counter here at our financial aid office. So, another solo show for me, for you. So let's get the show going. And again, welcome everyone to another episode of What's Brewing, CISFA. Let's start the show off with our first cup. Which makes it uh, maybe a, a good time to just kind of revisit why do we call the show What's Brewing, CISFA? Uh, and it's got a coffee theme and all that. It dates back to uh, almost two years ago, probably, when I was uh, a brand new CISFA, uh, probably president-elect going into my presidency year. I can't remember the time anymore. This pandemic has really messed up my timeline. But I have a coworker, Dana, who is our co-host most times. And she would come into my office, and I had my uh, K-Cup coffee machine in here, and she'd make some coffee. And, uh, you know, with my undergrad work in radio, TV, film, which I uh, certainly have not applied appropriately, well, maybe now I am, we uh, we do a little radio-type banter back and forth in the morning when she's getting her first or second or third cup of coffee ready for the day. So we had this little bit of a play back and forth on, you know, like a radio show kind of thing. So one of the thoughts I had, and this again was pre-pandemic, was to do a podcast. And in my mind, just some kind of podcast about financial aid or higher ed. And as president or incoming president of CISFA, I thought this would be a good way to communicate with our members and put together the things that I look for like a day of news, like today will be. And so uh, the plan was to have launched it probably right around the time COVID hit it hardest back in March of 2020. So it got delayed till the summer, but me and Dana worked it out remotely where I'd work from home with the equipment. She had some uh, equipment, a microphone, and some other things I gave her. And we would record twice a week the What's Brewing Ceasefire Show. And so it is coffee-based. When you find us on your podcast provider, you'll see in the graphic, if you blow it up, a little coffee cup staring right back at you. So today, like I said, today is going to be a news day. So we're going to run through some news. I don't know if it'll be a long or short show yet, but we'll find out. First article I have here is from the Inside Higher Ed website. Announcing that nearly 100,000 more students were awarded Cal Grants this fall. So as it starts here, roughly 99,000 more California Community College students were awarded a Cal Grant this fall, fall according to the California Student Aid Commission. Uh, this, you know, they credit this expanded eligibility requirements for the, uh, in the state budget for the increase. What happened is the budget eliminated restrictions on state aid based on age and time out of high school. Going back in time, just so you know here, what that meant is we'd always talk about the Cal Grant Entitlement Program and Competitive Program. And the Entitlement Program, as we would always talk, what I talk to 
parents at high schools meant that if your student was right out of high school or the year thereafter, they are eligible potentially for the Cal Grant Entitlement Program. In so much as if they met all the criteria, they would be awarded. There wasn't a limit on the number of awards. <laughs> and uh, the competitive program, set, uh, you know, on the opposite side of that was there would be a limited number of awards, but those criteria of like a minimum GPA, et cetera, and all, those numbers could be higher. So um, that would limit the pool. But they took out that whole part about how long you've been out of high school and the age limit on Cal grants. So this is a big step. Uh, it's good to see that we have more. That means, you know, with 116 community colleges, wow, you know, maybe eight or 900 extra students per college on average. So I'll give you a link to the Inside Higher Ed article in our show notes. Something I don't have a link to a story specifically from, but from NASFA, I read that we have a new school that is a NASFA member. So to give you that info, Los Medanos College, up in the northern part of the state, part of the Contra Costa Community College District, just joined NASFA as a member. And so NASFA does membership on an institutional basis. And that means that as an institution, we pay an institutional membership fee and then get all the rewards, um, discounts on training, um, discounts on webinars. Uh, the annual conference still costs money, but it costs less if you're a member. Um, and so many other things that are offered by NASFA. So congratulations. I think it was the only California community college that recently joined. Many others have already been members and others. Hopefully you're considering it out there. If you're at a California community college and you're not a NASFA member, look at what is available for the cost, which I find to be very reasonable for all the benefits. Continuing on with NASFA, we have some uh, stuff I pulled out of the Ask Regs area. And this one is, uh, uh, we probably have talked about this a little bit. This uh, Ask Regs, or part of their knowledge base, as they call it, is kind of like a Q&A section where people from NASFA have created an answer for a question that probably a lot of financial aid officers have. So this one is the question at hand. What should we do when, when the 2020 adjusted gross income is $1 on a 2022-23 FAFSA due to advanced child tax credit payments? So this is, this is a complicated one. But here, as it starts... Under the American Rescue Plan, advanced child tax credit payments began being paid to eligible individuals beginning in July 2021. The recipient's eligibility is based on 2019 and 2020 income reported on tax returns. For those who are not required to file tax returns for either or years, the IRS developed a child tax credit non-filer sign-up tool to determine eligibility for credit, obviously for those who didn't sign. So this complicated matters because what happened is it ends up showing a dollar adjusted gross income in the system. And so students who are doing 
the FAFSA and possibly their parents are doing this and adding their parents' income if they use what's called the IRS data retrieval tool where while doing the FAFSA online, you pull the information right in from the IRS. It's going to pull over this incorrect amount. In a sense, it's going to put that dollar that is in the IRS system to trigger this tax credit into the FAFSA information for adjusted gross income. So this incorrect adjusted gross income could result in students having lower expected family contribution. That's the number calculated from the FAFSA. And it could mean students get increased aid on incorrect information. So because this, you know, FAFSA cycle looks at past year income, past year income could be off because of this specific tax credit plan, part of the American Rescue Plan. Um, it does say schools need to look at this and address it accordingly. So uh, something to keep in mind uh, as you are looking at these things. If you're working through financial aid files, you're seeing dollar adjusted gross incomes. It probably relates to this. I'm not going to give you the full answer. I'm going to let you go out there to NASA if you're a member and find the information. But I'll give you a link to the Ask Regs article. Another one here from NASFA reporting here. Uh, Department of Ed's internal watchdog outlines areas of focus, including transition to repayment for borrowers and use of professional judgment. So this comes out of an annual report released recently where the Department of Ed's internal watchdog detailed its plans to provide oversight on the department over the course of an upcoming year and what they're going to focus on. So it says here specifically OIG, the Office of Inspector General, said new areas of focus would include oversight of proprietary institutions and how those schools are following the 90-10 rule, which we'll talk about someday, but it really doesn't apply to community colleges. And then FSA's oversight of contractors' acceptability review process for proprietary school annual audits, uh, among some other things. There are some continuing areas to prioritize evaluating financial aid offices, compliance with professional judgment requirements. And so, again, professional judgment is the term that we use in our business when we're going to, in a sense, override the standard federal rules in areas that we're allowed to. For example, one of the biggest ones would be in cases where we, as a financial aid office, can deem a student to be an independent student and not a dependent student when, based upon the federal rules, they would be a dependent student. You know, things like on the FAFSA, again, if you're under the age of 24, you're unmarried, you don't have kids of your own, things like that, you'd be a dependent student probably and need parent information on the FAFSA. But sometimes there's these cases where students fall through the cracks and realistically cannot get information from their parents. What do they do? A school does have their... Uh, uh, allowance to override the federal rules on this and make them independent. The other biggest area that we handle for professional judgments would be reviews of income. Because after all, we're talking about a FAFSA filed in one year using the tax year from before for a year off into the future. So what if something happens in between? 
And certainly during these pandemic times, we've seen that. So a school can look into that and use like future income and see if that changes the overall eligibility of a student. You know, we wouldn't do it to hurt a student if parents' income was going up. But what if it's going down? A school can certainly look at that depending upon the circumstances at hand. So I'm going to give you a link to this article, too, just so you can kind of see where the OIG will be focusing its efforts in the coming year. Uh, not that it means that they're all coming after us, but there are things that they want to make certain schools are, if, for example, they're doing these professional judgment reviews for students, that they're following through and getting the type of documentation that would allow them to do so and not just making up information or doing it for reasons that we would not be allowed to do. For example, before we go on this one, just because, uh, let's say we have a student who's an actor and earns great money and is financially self-supporting, uh, but they're 19 years old. Again, <clears throat> based upon all the criteria the federal government may give, they may still need parent information to do their FAFSA. But again, that's just an extreme example there. Let's move on to one last thing here from NASFA. Another Ask Regs here. Uh, so, and this comes up a lot, even in community colleges, where we may not have as much institutional aid, but the Q&A put forth was, does aid need to be reduced if institutional or athletic aid plus a Pell Grant exceeds the student's cost of attendance? And this comes up because, again, there are limits on how much financial aid, in particular certain types of Title IV aid, which is the federal types of aid, a student may be able to receive within a school year. And we start with the overarching idea that it's cost of attendance is a big driver of this. Cost of attendance is our term that we use for the estimated cost for going to college for a given academic year. That includes tuition and fees, books and supplies, housing and food, transportation, and some other personal costs. When you add all that up, that comes up with the estimated cost for the student. From there, of course, we have to take into account for those who are getting federal aid, the expected family contribution, high or low, that kind of determines that number, a student's eligibility for need-based aid. For example, if it costs $50,000 as a cost of attendance for a school year, and a student's EFC or expected family contribution was 5000 the difference of those two is 45000 That would be conceivably the maximum need-based amount of aid a student could receive based on financial need. But there's a lot of other factors in here. And things that kind of throw us off sometimes is this idea of institutional or athletic aid. Now, for community colleges, we may not have the athletic aid. Well, we may have some institutional aid, but there is always that concern of what if we're over-awarding. And so this is a really good ask, Greg, that breaks it down well so that we understand that just because they get Pell Grant and these other types of aid doesn't mean you reduce other types of aid or even Pell Grant. Pell Grant in general, you do not touch at all. But maybe they're getting work study and student loans and FSEOG or other federal grants. Those might have to be you know, decreased a little bit. So this is a very nice article. I'll give you a link. I don't want to blow the whole story for you. Uh, and before we continue on with more stories, 
I think it's time for a little music. And welcome back to the What's Brewing Seas for the show. And let's get into our second cup. Time for a refill. My coffee's already good and cold. I think it's because I have way too big of a cup. And no matter how much I put in, it gets a little cold too quick. So on to a couple more items. Just to let you know, there are some job postings that seemed kind of interesting. I found between NASA and some other websites. First one, if you are looking to run away from the state of California, and there's certainly lots of pros and cons of that, everybody, uh, Alaska Pacific University up in Anchorage, Alaska, is looking to fill a director of financial aid position. The good thing is it says required travel, 0 to 10%. So that means you're not going to have to get yourself on a, a little plane and fly around the state of Alaska too much for your job. But we are looking for someone to be the director here at Alaska Pacific University. It's got posted. Um, it doesn't show salary, but my guess is that because it is Alaska, it probably pays pretty well. So, you know, if you're looking at some real wilderness, somewhere far out there, a different population of people. I'm not knocking it at all. I had once applied for a, a residence life position at an Alaska school back when I was young and wasn't really sure where I wanted to end up as far as statewide or whatever. So that's one posting. But if you are looking to stay a little closer to home, there is a director of financial aid position, not too far from my school, actually, at Cal Arts, the California Institute of the Arts. It's not a community college. It's a, a four-year private institution doing bachelor degrees and such in the arts. And there's quite a few uh, famous actors and actresses that have gone to that school. So they're pretty well known. So director of financial aid there, again, they're looking for someone with some experience not a bad job to look into. And again, I'll give you links to the NASFA Career Center for these. Uh, but again, you can probably find them on some other sites like Inside Higher Ed and all. Or if you go to the school's websites themselves. Last couple items here for news today. So something reported in NASFA, this, but this is going to be something that's going to be coming along. And it may not affect much of uh, people here at community colleges. But it's a topic that's out there. And I have to say, you know, a person who goes to cigar shops on a regular basis, uh, you get to sit um, mostly with other men. Uh, but we do have women that come into the shop. And you get to talk about sports quite a bit. So this is a topic that's kind of come and gone and keeps going. And what's the topic here at hand? Here's the title to the article. FSA issues guidance on how financial aid offices should treat name, image, and likeness compensation. So you may have heard that term, name, image, and likeness, before. So this is all, you know, relating to the fact that over this last year here, uh, 
college athletes have been given kind of a, a, an opening here to earn money and uh, through opportunities that use their name, image, and likeness. Whereas before, amateur athletes and those at colleges in particular were banned from such things. So, as it says here at the start of the article, the Department of Ed this week issued guidance to financial aid administrators on awarding Title IV aid to student-athletes who have received compensation under name, image, and likeness contracts. So, there's a Dear Colleague letter detail how we'll treat this compensation. You know, since there was a Supreme Court ruling that prompted, you know, an interim policy change from the NCAA that opened the door for this possible compensation. So as it says here, the guidance makes clear that the IRS treats NIL or name, image, and likeness compensation as taxable income. And any NIL compensation is reflected on a student's 1099 form should be reflected in the student's adjusted gross income for the appropriate, you know, tax year. So, in a sense, then, it will show up as income potentially a year or two later because, again, we're talking about you fill out a FAFSA one year using income from the year before while that FAFSA is being applied for the year thereafter. So, there's some good information here. I'm going to say, I'm going to give you the link to the NASA article, but definitely check out the Dear Colleague letter for more information. I think some people, you know, get confused uh, uh, too much on this topic. Um, it is income is income. You know, my concern is, uh, and I think I said in a, you know, ironic or satirical way to somebody, I just want to wait to see where the next uh, boot falls on this issue of college athletes potentially getting bad tax advice from people as far as not filing when they are receiving potentially significant compensation for their name, image, or likeness. So we're going to have to see how that plays out. And our last article for the day, coming from Forbes magazine online, from Richard Vetter, who is a contributor, and he is a professor of economics emeritus. So he must have retired recently, I guess, from Ohio University. And his article is an interesting one, whether you agree with or have read any of his books, and I've bought some of his books. He does write about higher ed and spending in higher ed and such. His article is called The Declining Industry, The Growing Financial Risks of Attending College. So it's a pretty good article here on Forbes, and it starts off by talking about how there was a recent article in the Chronicle for Higher Ed that 46% of the students graduating from Eastern New Mexico State University made less than $25,000 annually, less than the earnings of a typical full-time Walmart employee with a high school education, and this is after college. Also, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal I may have talked about last week or so that talked of recent graduates who earned degrees online at the University of Southern California um, through their social work program, that is, amassing six-digit debts and working in similarly lower-paying jobs. So Mr. Vetter, or Professor Vetter's article here, talks about are we willing to look at and see where there may be some kind of misalignment here on the value 
of bachelor's degrees or degrees from colleges at all. And again, there's always outliers, you know, those at the far ends that make significant money and those that don't. But in general, when people are going to college, are they taking this into consideration? You know, as far as aligning time that you're going to be in college and also aligning how much you're willing to invest, including student loans. It's nice to say that it's great to aim high, but will there be some kind of payoff? So I'll definitely give you a link to the Forbes article. Um, and it's a pretty good read here. Not too long either. I think it's about time for a little bit of music. Move ourselves into the last part of our show. All right, everybody. Guess what? We are back for our last sip. And with that last sip comes one last item. Some I dare you to's. Now, these are going to be what I'm going to call um, unseen. I don't want to use the word blind. It kind of connotes things that uh, may not be correct on this. But unseen, uh, I dare you to's, in the sense that I've not read these books. But I have bought them. And it brings to mind one question. Is my local Barnes & Noble know that I'm coming through the door and thus they only leave one copy each of these books? And what it is, I may be one of the few people who goes to the education section and buys books about higher ed and student loans and financial aid. Other than those guides about scholarships and all that I assume, parents may be buying for their students coming out of high school or those who are looking for an LSAT or MCAT study guide. I'm buying books like this from Caitlin Zaloom. The book is called Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. And I'm pretty sure that I read a little bit of blurb on this sometime recently. Comes out from the Princeton Press, a Princeton University. Uh, but I guess kind of remember here, uh, again, I can't remember where I read it, Inside Higher Ed or Education Next Journal or such, about, again, exploring the ways parents and students find a way to muster the money and ability to go to college and get through. So, Caitlin Zaloom, the book is Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. The other one, uh, someone in a similar line here, uh, titled Indentured Students. How Government Guaranteed Loans Left Generations Drowning in College Debt comes from Elizabeth Tandy Shermer. Uh, this book comes out from Harvard University Press. So these are pretty thick tomes, but I think fairly readable. Of course, it would be nice to have a couple charts. Oh, there they were at the end of this book. Again, unread, but I know I'd read the title somewhere. I always like to keep a list of books I'm looking for in my uh, to-do app. So when I'm out at the store, uh, but certainly a couple books here on student loans, indebtedness, and things people do to go to college. 
uh, just some th- thought pieces in the general idea again about college affordability and students' readiness and willingness to take on student debt to get through. So I'll have some links to those in the show notes also. But amazingly, I think we've hit the end of the show here. So don't worry. There should be another one on Friday. We may be recording fairly early just to get it done uh, due to some things on Friday afternoon. But we'll try to have another great show. And hopefully Dana will be with us. So I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us here on the What's Brewing Seasfish Show. And if you have something to say or you have topics you want us to discuss, email us at wbcisfa at gmail.com. You can find this and all What's Brewing Seasfish podcasts on Google Podcasts, your Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the TuneIn app on your Amazon Echo by using Alexa. What's Brewing Sisva is a production of Studio 1051, a creative collaboration of me and Dana Yarbrough. This has been episode number 138, recorded Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. Everybody, have a great day and have a great week.